Welcome into the Mormon Hope Podcast. I'm Brandon Vaughn along with Dave Malinak. We're two Baptist pastors. So, you know, I always have to remind myself what to say. We've been so long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, we, uh, we probably should catch everybody up on what we've been doing. I don't know if we have time for all that. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, I tell you, between, you know, being two pastors about 45 minutes away from each other and all these camps and my wife's health and your wife's health and a partridge in a pear tree. Um, <laughs> we just, uh, I think it's been February since we've been able to record, but we're going to get back on track. But uh, I, because it has been so long, I do want to remind everybody that we are two Baptist pastors who live in pastor here in the heart of Mormon country, Utah. And we do like to use this podcast as a means to uh, defend and discuss our Christian faith and compare it with the faith of our LDS neighbors. And uh, we're going to do something a little bit different. We'll change gears just a little bit. Uh, we're actually going to stagger uh, two different series. We're going to uh, be doing one on the attributes of God. And then maybe once a month, we're going to start walking through the Book of Mormon uh, book by book and just kind of give an overview uh, one book at a time. And I think that will be beneficial. Um, I know it will be beneficial to me because I will be studying more of Mormonism. <laughs> you know, I never want to uh, misrepresent what anybody believes. I want to, I want to take it straight from the horse's mouth. You know, what did yes. what did Joseph Smith say? What did he mean? What's the proper interpretation? How does this square with what Scripture says? And I think when we do that, that's really the only way to come to the truth. Yeah. Yeah, not that, uh, not to dis derail because we want to talk about um, God, the eternal God today. Yes, uh, but just a quick thought on the Book of Mormon. Uh, the Book of Mormon is more a history than a book of doctrine. Uh, there certainly are um, statements and their conversations about God that are contained in that history uh, that say that, that make claims about God and. Uh, truth claims about him. But the Book of Mormon itself is a history. It's um, not, uh, it, there's a lot of effort made by the LDS to confirm and verify. And uh, there are Mormon history tours and things like that. There, There's a big conference, in fact, just happened a few months ago, uh, where they offer all the um, archaeological proof and that sort of thing for the Book of Mormon. Uh, it's sort of a parallel universe to what you see with biblical archaeology and that kind of thing. Um, but the second thing that I think is important to note, um, I was listening to a discussion between James White and Alma Allred, and Alma point, made the point that uh, Mormonism, he said, um, is not about um, belief. It's about practice. It's about behavior. He said, not about belief. It's about behavior. Uh, he said, uh, there really is not anything that a person could say, I believe this, or I don't believe this, that would get you, um, bring you under discipline or, uh, the threat of excommunication, but behavior would, um, and I thought that was really interesting. So even as we talk about attributes of God, um, our LDS neighbors 
are interested and curious, um, but not necessarily committed to a particular view on these things. I think that when we look, though, at what the LDS Church presents about the eternity of God, I think that there will be a clear contrast that's being made. And our challenge to our LDS neighbors, of course, is to consider that doctrine does matter, that um, what, what the Bible teaches are the things that are to be believed, as well as the practices, the behavior uh, that ought to be there. Yeah, because belief always determines behavior. You can't separate the two. That's correct. And that's why, yes, we are going to do maybe like a once a month episode uh, through the Book of Mormon. But the other series that we're actually starting today is the attributes of God. Yes. Uh, because ultimately our differences, you know, between Christianity and Mormonism, it is ultimately about the God that we worship and then everything just trickles down from there. That's right. And so today we're going to be talking about the eternity of God. And, you know, we use these theological terms, but just in layman's terms, Pastor Malinek, if you could give give a basic definition, when we talk about the eternity of God, what are we saying? Well, I love the the words of the psalmist in Psalm 90. Uh, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. Or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. The Bible teaches that God, not only that God has no beginning and has no ending, that he is from everlasting to everlasting, that if you could go from to the edge of time and peer out if it was possible, if, if time had an edge— and you could peer out over it and look beyond time, you would see nothing but God. And if you could go to the other edge, the end of time, and look out over that edge, God would fill the space beyond that as well. The way the Bible describes it, uh, it, that I think is a real vivid description, is in the name of God, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last. So the alpha is um, the the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And when God says, I am alpha and omega, he is saying that there is nothing, just as in in our alphabet, there's no letter before A, and there's no letter after Z. Even so, God, there's nothing before him, and there is nothing after him, and he is everywhere in between. And we could think of it this way, that God dwells outside of time. God created time, and our finite minds can only understand time and things in terms of time. So whenever we think of God, we have to peer into eternity, which is above time and and wraps around time. And really time is, but it's like a line segment that is on a piece of paper that you're holding, that you're looking at. When God looks at time, the Bible tells us that he sees the end from the beginning, that God is viewing all of time in one glance, like you looking at a line segment on a piece of paper. 
uh, he is seeing it that way. But God himself dwells outside of time and fills all of eternity. And there's not a time in eternity past when God was not everything that he is at this moment. That's what we mean. And uh, I've heard it said that eternity is not the place where God dwells. God is the place where eternity dwells. Well, I think that's wonderful. That's a that's an excellent analogy. And you know, people hear us talking about these finer points of theology, and they think, you know, what's the big deal? I mean, who cares? But uh, we're actually uh, our church once a month on Friday nights. We get together and we have a meal, and we're we're going through the book Knowing God by J.R. Oh, yeah. Packer together as a church. I have it sitting right here on my desk right now while we're yes. talking. and so I'll go through a couple of chapters, and I'll come up with a study guide and send it out to the church. And we all, we all come and discuss, you know, what we read and we're actually, we just dealt with this very thing. And, you know, Packer really emphasized the implications of the very doctrine we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people realize that they don't think through the ramifications of some of the things they believe or don't believe in, you know, when it comes to the eternity of God, this also bleeds over into the immutability of God, the yes, the fact that God is unchanging. And, uh, you know, of course, in LDS doctrine, um, they believe in the progression of God, that he that he changes, that he was once a man as we are and that we can become right. a God as he is. But the thing about that is that the, the implications of that are are awful because, you know, first of all, you could never even know what to expect from a God like that. Right. Like there's right. no, there's no consistency. There's no absolutes. What's wrong one day could be okay. The next day. And what's, what's That's okay right. now may be wrong tomorrow. I think it's the reason why uh, many members of the LDS church are almost bracing themselves for the church to embrace homosexuality and, uh, and, and that sort of thing, because uh, as much as, I mean, I, again, I was listening to the conversation with James White and Alma Allred, which our, our listeners can uh, Google that and they can watch it themselves and see what I'm talking about. But James White, near the end of the discussion, really pinned Alma Allred down on the question of what would keep the LDS church from embracing homosexuality. Um, and and Allred's answer should disturb any member of the church because Allred has been uh, the director of the Institute of Religion for many years, and he's been in the church. He's he's not questioning his faith at all. But when he was asked why, what would keep God or the LDS Church from embracing it, he said they just won't. That was his answer. I've heard and, that quite a few times, actually. Yeah, and and the point, of course that James White was getting at was that uh, the, the view of God, and this is a point that we've tried to make consistently in the 20 years that I've been in ministry here in Utah, 25 years now, actually, um, is that a God who is a changing God, uh, who is himself progressing, can progress in any direction he wishes. He is God. And so there's nothing that prevents him from progressing 
in a way that is different than he's progressed before. But actually, when we look at the history of God's progress, quote unquote progress, um, we see how uh, the whether it's blacks in the priesthood or polygamy, um, those kinds of things that the church has had a dramatic shift of position on based on a revelation from God. Now, those are things that were um, very strongly held. You know, the ban on blacks in the priesthood was very central to LDS thinking prior to that revelation, because according to the Book of Mormon, um, which, of course, has also changed quite a bit over the years, um, but prior to that, I think it's slowly been taken out, but at least the Book of Mormon that I read 10 or 15 years ago, uh, black skin was a curse, and that the longer people, black-skinned people, kept following uh, Christ, generation to generation, the Book of Mormon claim was that their skin would become lighter and lighter until they became white and delightsome. Now, that has been edited out of the Book of Mormon now, um, but that certainly was in there 10 or 15 years ago. And um, so this kind of thing was, you know, black skin was a curse, and uh, now it's changed. So uh, God can progress any way that he wishes. And so there's really no stemming the tide of what what may be down the road. I think that a lot of, especially our more conservative LDS friends, are pretty concerned about where where things may head. Yeah, I'm, I agree totally. And you know how could um, how could anybody say that? I mean, given uh, the history of Mormonism, you know, polygamy was not only taught; it was encouraged. Right. Until it became socially unacceptable, and then they changed it. And, you know, blacks weren't allowed into the priesthood until, you know, that became socially unacceptable not to allow that. And then they changed it. And now you see this hurricane of LGBT propaganda. Why, why would they have any reason to believe that wouldn't happen? Right. Yeah. Well, and, and down the road, and that's the thing that we've got to remember, is that down the road, you know, the push is going to get stronger and stronger. And we can be almost certain that in our country, eventually it will become illegal, as it is in Canada now, to speak out against um, homosexuality, to say that it's a sin that God will judge at the last day, uh, to make any of those kinds of things. And so... Um, I, you know, our anticipation would be um, that social pressure will work in that direction. I, I personally believe that polygamy will be embraced by the LDS church, probably right around the same time that homosexuality is um, with that. I know that we're not really discussing the eternity of God here because we're comparing it right now. Well, we had Zoom drop out on us. Uh, this is the first time we're <laughs> we trying it on Zoom between our schedules and the 45-minute drive and gas yeah. being so high. This is just the way to do it. But we had some uh, some difficulties there. But 
Uh, I did hear somebody say the other day that uh, President Biden has made them understand why everybody in the book of Revelation are riding horses. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But but we're talking about the eternity of God. And and I know that we're, you know, kind of comparing here and contrasting. But but I think the bigger point is the implications of not believing in a God who is eternal, who is unchanging, right. who, who doesn't, you know, lick his finger and hold it to the wind to see which way the culture is blowing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If he's unchanging and unchangeable, which is really what it means to be eternal, that there's not a starting point for God. Uh, he, he is the starting point himself and that there isn't, there wasn't a time when he became God, or when he became perfect, or when he, um, I guess, his attributes reached critical mass, now so that you could call him God, he's become godlike now. There's none of that. Now, the Bible doesn't recognize any such thing that God is in the beginning. And that's, in fact, that's the opening line of the Bible in the beginning, God, right there. So there's nothing before God, there's nothing. Uh, that was there prior to uh, God, or there's not any time in eternity that is prior to God, and that God is what he, he always has been and always will be. He is the perfection of uh, all, all beings. He is uh, everything that, in fact, that's what the holiness of God is speaking of the perfection of all of his attributes, so that God is not only the perfect mix of these, um, as I think Jonathan Edwards would say it, diverse excellences, but also that God is the perfection of every one of his attributes, so that God is love, which means that he is perfectly loving. He is perfect as love. He, he, there's, there's not any um, deficiency in his love or in his uh, power, his might, his knowledge, um, his sovereignty. Uh, none of that. There's no deficiency. There's nothing to be added that would, per, that would improve. There's nothing to be taken away uh, that would fix anything. But God is all that he is and all that he ought to be. It's amazing how, you know, just one attribute of God, you know, if you believe it, if you don't believe it, it, it totally changes everything. Um, you know, this, we, we talked about how the eternity of God bleeds into the immutability of God, the fact he never changes. And if he does change, there's a lot of, you know, really bad implications from that. <laughs> yes. Uh, but also, you know, this really um, bleeds over into other areas. Um, you know, not only is he just the creator, but he's also created. Yes. And which means he's not, he's also not truly sovereign. Right. And, uh, you know, he's, he's not, um, he's not omniscient. He's not uh, omnipresent. He's not all knowing. I mean, if he's, you know, I cannot stress enough how at odds perfection and progression are. Yes. You know, if, if he's progressing, then he has no perfections. He's, he's learning. He's kind of learning as we are. He's just further along the journey than we are. 
And yeah. so it's just when you all wrap this whole thing up, it's just such a low view of God that it's it's hard for me to imagine that anybody could truly worship him. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, um, it's it really uh, what what is happening is God is being diminished to man's level. He, he's really just a super superman uh, who shows us how we can also be supermen, uh, but he's not God. He's not over all. He is not all glorious. Um, he resembles us, which is really that's that's the common view of God is a God that resembles me. Uh, the first idol that most people embrace is themselves. Absolutely. Well, and I was um, I was talking to a man recently. We we had handed out some uh, or put out some door hangers with, you know, gospel tracks to Mormons and had a man reach out to me and he wanted me to come talk to him. Uh, it was more, you know, to try to convert me than the other way around, but I still enjoy the conversation. I had a very, you know, friendly conversation with a man who actually is a current temple worker. Uh, he used to be a Bishop, very well respected man in this area. And, uh, we were talking and this subject came up and I said, you know, I'm not throwing rocks at you. I just want you to think about something. I said, you do realize that the ultimate goal, the ultimate good news for the Mormons is the exact promise that Satan made to Eve in the garden that, <laughs> you know, if you eat of this tree, yep. you'll become as gods, you know, knowing good and evil. And in other words, you can become your own God. You don't need, you don't need that God. You can be your own God. You can be exalted. Yes. And so that really, um, his face was priceless. I mean, he, you know, you could tell he didn't like that, but he, he couldn't really refute it. And right. you know, we openly, as always, we mentioned, we encourage uh, dialogue. We would love for somebody to reach out to us, email us, you know, let's talk, let's talk these things over, you know, tell us how we're wrong. Tell me what the difference is between the Mormon doctrine of exaltation and the promise that Satan made to Eve in the garden. That would be a great discussion to have. Yes. Yeah. It, it's, it's a hard thing to get anybody willing to talk about it um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but nonetheless, the offer still stands. And uh, in fact, uh, I think that we'd be happy to have someone come on our show with us on our podcast uh, where we could discuss these things um, openly and take the word of God and compare and contrast um, with a person. Now uh, we put that offer out as well. But the flip side of everything we're talking about, and we were talking about the negative consequences. If God is eternal, if he's not immutable, if he's not omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign, all these things. But the flip side of this is, the fact that the Bible teaches that he is all of those things and the fact that he is brings a huge comfort to the child of God. Absolutely. The, the idea that in fact, the, the verse is actually contained in the book of Mormon as well as in the Bible, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's an interesting thing when I, and when I first read it in the book of Mormon, I, it surprised me, but it doesn't surprise me again. It goes back to what I said before that um, for the LDS and their view 
Mormonism is not about belief, but about behavior. And so the belief is really all over the map and the descriptions of these things. So they're, in fact, I um, pulled up, uh, let me pull it up again. Uh, the eternal nature of God from uh, churchofjesuschrist.org. And an, a long list of verses from Doctrines and Covenants, from, um, from the Book of Mormon, and so on, that are showing that Jesus is the eternal God, uh, that um, God is the eternal Father, the everlasting God, the eternal God. These are words that are used pervasively um, by the LDS Church. Uh, but we come back into that problem of trying to square the circle here uh, where we're saying one thing about God and then we're saying another thing that entirely contradicts that. So if, as the LDS church teaches, if uh, I'm pulling it up here, as man now is God once was as God now is man may be uh, as Lorenzo snow said it. Or as Joseph Smith said it in the King Follett discourse, God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. That is the great secret. Well, that's that contradicts everything that the Book of Mormon, that the doctrine of Co doctrines and covenants claims about God being eternal because eternal means something. The, the word has to have meaning. Yes. And it doesn't mean that he had a beginning in eternity. Doesn't mean that he is eternal, not that he began in eternity or that he began. He is everlasting from the point of his beginning onward. That's not what it means. Everlasting is infinite in both directions. Yeah. And, you know, we can't comprehend that and. You know, we can't even imagine a God who is outside of time, space, and matter. But but those parameters, uh, time, space, and matter, uh, they're to give us a way to gauge everything but God. Right. God is God created those things. He's not contained by those things. Yes. And you know, the problem that I have run into in the past with you know many of the cults is. If, if their God cannot fit within the logic of their four pound brain, they can't go along with that. But, but God, God, by definition, the creator, by definition has to be above his creatures. Yeah. yeah and, that's right. and so in many instances, you know, we just have to take God's revelation of him, his special revelation of himself found within scripture. And we have to say when it comes to certain things, you know, I accept that. Right. But I can't I can't fully understand that. Well, and and part of it is it what's persuasive to me. A God that's like me is not persuasive to me. No. And a God that my finite mind can grasp is no no God at all. And that would be my critique uh, of our LDS neighbors is that their God is too small. He's their God is as small as me. Yeah. And that's too small for God. Uh, you know, whatever I may be as a man, I, I, I'm no God at all, nor could I be. 
and nor can they be either. And, and that's the thing that uh, we need to stress as well. God is not an exalted man. He never, well, um, God once became man, but man never became God. God entered into our humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. But that's not the same thing as saying that God is an exalted man, that God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man, as Joseph Smith has claimed. Well, I think, uh, you know, getting back to Scripture, I know something we always come back to. Very rarely do I have a conversation with a Mormon that I don't bring this up, and that, of course, would be Isaiah 43.10. He said, You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. That's right. That's about as clear a contradiction of the idea that um, God is an exalted man or that God was once as we are, um, that you can't contradict it more firmly than what Isaiah says right there. Um, well, I've heard it try. I've heard some try to explain it away uh, to say, well, that's just talking about in this universe. Yeah. But, <laughs> but clearly, I mean, the language is so black and white before me, there was no God. Period. Right. Period. It didn't say yeah. in this universe. And it's, and it also said after me, there's not going to be any gods. Right. And so that, that destroys exaltation. It destroys progression. Yeah. Um, it just, well, and even the idea that there are other universes where um, there might be other gods, we run into several problems with that idea. One is that um, if, if that is the case, then no God is absolute. No God uh, is sovereign, totally uh, God, because there's a point somewhere in the vast space of the heavens, there's a point where God has a boundary. So then he's not limited because he's bound or he is limited by the other God. And the other God has his domain, his dominion. Um, and so the God of uh, each God is their own regional or territorial God, whether that territory is in the, in, in space. And that can't be that because God declares himself to be infinite and without any bound or limit other than himself, God is unlimited except for himself. Uh, he limits himself. The second thing is that the Bible says that the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. And in fact, in Isaiah, I think it's in Isaiah uh, 43, that God talks about holding the um, all the heavens, all of space in the span, which would be the, uh, he holds it in between his, extended thumb and pinky finger now uh, that it is all held there uh, so in other words god is far greater far um, more vast and immeasurable than the universe than space nothing can contain god he fills all things 
Yeah. And I mean, once again, talking about this, uh, tr- you've heard of trickle down economics. This is trickle down theology. <laughs> but if, if you hold to the Mormon idea of progression, exaltation, all those things, you just said it. It means that God is contained within this universe that right that there are you know the universe is kind of like a fence that has to hold in this particular god for this particular universe and it just it it absolutely destroys the omnipresence of god as as if there was some place you know and and also it may it actually means there there has to be something out there bigger than the god of this universe I mean, before him, there was a God and before him, there was a God and before him, there was a God. And, you, you know, it just, it continued back to what, like, where, what is the, what's the origin of everything? What was, you know, was the original God like the God of the Bible that we're talking about now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I uh, would mention Isaiah 44, eight, which says, fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. So if if God were the God of this universe and there was another God of another universe, you don't think that they would know each other, that they would know who each other is, uh, like their neighbors, right? And he's got that planet over there. Uh, he says, I don't know any other God. This is the all-knowing God, the God who knows everything, who never learned anything, but knows everything because he is the cause of all things. And he's saying, I do not know any other God. The reason he doesn't know any other God is because there is no other God to know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a, a great thought as well. And, uh, you know, I tell you how, when you, when you get away from this big God, biblical theology, you just run into all kinds of problems. And, um, I'm actually, um, one of my required courses for the degree I'm studying for right now is, uh, I have to take some philosophy classes and, um, in, in the class that I'm taking actually during this summer semester, um, they brought up what was known as the Euthyphro dilemma. And, uh, Socrates came up with this dilemma where he said, he asked the question, he said, does God command things because they are good or are certain things good just because God commands them? (laughs) And the point that he was making is if God commands things because they are good, that means there must be an outside standard somewhere in the cosmos that's That's greater than God. And he's, you know, God is just kind of reporting the news. Uh, and he's not sovereign, but on the other hand, if things are good, just because God commands them, then everything is arbitrary because, you know, he could, you know, rape is wrong today, but he could decree that it's okay tomorrow and there's nothing to stop him. He's God. And whatever he says is good. And, you know, that's what the Muslims believe this, uh, this ethical volunteerism, but, and so, you know, the doctrines of Mormonism, couldn't hold up under that kind of scrutiny. Right. But as biblical Christians, we can look at that dilemma and say, Hey, that's a false dilemma because God's commands come from his own holy, unchanging character. 
Right. He commands us not to steal because he's not a thief. Yeah. And it's always going to be wrong to steal and right not to steal because he, in his unchanging nature, he's never going to become a thief. Right. And so uh, it just, it causes all kind of problems when you just don't believe in a God that actually is God. Yes, that's right. That's right. So the idea too, that great, gives us great comfort in the doctrine that God is eternal is the fact that when we have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and when we've been reconciled to God by him and redeemed, that we look forward to an eternity spent in the presence of God. Yes. And that there will be no end to that. There won't be, it won't run out. We won't run out of time that our, the end of our life, which our life is temporal, but the end of our life, death becomes the doorway, the portal into eternity where we are then ushered into all of eternity to spend with the Lord. Uh, so shall we ever be with the Lord? This is such a good thing. Uh, it will never be lost, uh, and time will never run out, uh, but we'll be enjoying him. We're in the place where a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And so that is, I mean, you just hit it on the head. That is the core difference in Christianity and Mormonism that we're talking about. In one instance, in Christianity, we're worshiping the only true God for all eternity. Whereas in the other one, you know, we become our own God and start our own universe and, you know, kind of do our own thing. And, you know, um, we're actually, I'm preaching through the book of revelation on Wednesday nights. And we just recently went through chapter five, that great scene in heaven where the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, they're throwing their crowns down at the feet of Jesus, who is in the midst of heaven on the throne, and everybody's falling on their face and worshiping him. And that's just such a a, a different scene. Oh, yeah. It's so beautiful. Yes. Such yeah. a different uh, end goal than yes. what we're talking about right now. Yes. Well, and then we can say, too, that a person who does not love the eternal God does not value him in his eternity, um, does not see any purpose or point to an everlasting God, a God who is ha, is the beginning and is the end, um, that they really would not enjoy heaven either. Uh, because if you don't believe that God is eternal and you don't want him to be, well, then why would you want to spend eternity with that eternal God? Yeah. You're not, you're not looking forward to that at all. And so, and that's, that's the warning I would give to our LDS friends as well, is that you can, you can persuade yourself that God is whatever uh, you've, you've, you're convinced of, uh, but that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not one we conjure up in our minds that he is the one who's revealed himself in the pages of scripture. And what he has revealed about himself is the truth about himself. And if you desire to be with him for all eternity, uh, then you would desire to be with the God revealed in scripture, not the God that has been cooked up 
in the fevered brain of a 15 year old? <laughs> well, uh, you know, to that point, uh, the man that I was talking to the, the ex Bishop, um, he, we were, we were talking and I, I brought up the question. I said, so, you know, you believe in three different levels of heaven and God only dwells in the celestial kingdom, the one at the very top. And I said, so I want to ask you this question. I said, the other two levels of heaven, are you telling me that there's a heaven without God? <laughs> because to me, I mean, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt, there would be a lot of people that would be perfectly content with the mansions, the streets of gold, the crystal sea, you know, all of the, the glory and the non-suffering and all the things that come with that. They would be perfectly fine with that for all eternity, even if the Lord wasn't there. Absolutely. And I told him, I said, that's not heaven to me. You know, you could, you could trade all that and just give me Jesus. You know that there's no such thing as heaven without the Lord. Yes, that's right. And, and it's uh, interesting too, because when you look at it, the way people live in this world, people really do live their life without regard for God. And when you see the way we accumulate things and the way that we uh, build for ourselves, you know, there are a lot of people that would be perfectly happy, um, not even going to heaven, but just living in a cabin in Montana on a beautiful <laughs> lake, you know, and, and it's a, I mean, this is an issue that we have, that we live for the temporal instead of the eternal. And, and that's what the apostle Paul pointed out as well, is that um, the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Yeah. And I think it points us to the eternal God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust doth not corrupt, where thieves don't break through and steal. Now, this is what God wants us to be doing. This, this is where our treasure is to be, and our treasure is to be him as well. So and spending eternity with him, you know, the, the, the idea of mansions is, by the way, uh, really not a true um, depiction of heaven. Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. Uh, so that tells you right off the bat that whatever we, uh, our conception of a mansion is not what he was talking about right there. Yeah, it's uh, much smaller. <laughs> yes. Well, it's a house with many mansions. I it, I assume, you know, you can think of it as um, palatial suites, uh, perhaps like is some of those condos that you might see in, in New York City that cover an entire floor or something like that. But the Bible tells us that our eye has not seen, our ear has not heard. Uh, neither has entered into our heart the things that God has prepared for those that love him. So we can't really imagine what heaven is like. No. The one thing that we know for certain is that God fills heaven and inhabits the praises of his saints in heaven. Absolutely. And that's what we're looking forward to. That's like I said, there's no such thing as, heaven without God, these, these multiple levels of heaven, you know, the, there's no scriptural basis, but 
like I said, uh, there's no such thing as heaven without the Lord, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, as we kind of come in for a landing here, I would just ask my LDS friends, you know, if you believe these things, the question is why, and on, on what basis do you believe those things? Can you find those things taught within the pages of scripture? And, I, and when I say scripture, I'm talking about the Genesis to revelation, the, the canon of scripture. Yes. And if you can't find it in the Bible, why not? Right. If you can find it in the teachings and the, the documents, the writings of Mormonism, and you can't find it in the Bible, you have to ask yourself why. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like I, when I'm talking to Mormons, I usually always bring up the fact that, you know, based on what they teach and what they say, you know, you can say that in theory, Mormonism uh, could be right. Or you could say that Christianity could be right. Um, in theory, I guess they could both be wrong. But I said, there's no way they can both be right. That's right. But they're not the same thing. And so you, you have to come to the conclusion which one's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and it's interesting because the view of the LDS view of, of uh, eternity and an eternal God in particular uh, contradicts itself. It, it in, internally is incoherent because you can't have a God who once was as we are and who is eternal at the same time. You can't, uh, there's just no way uh, to make that happen. Like I said, it's like trying to square a circle, draw a square circle for me. Um, you, you can't do that kind of thing. And uh, so what we ought to do is to take the Bible as the authority, God's authoritative revelation of himself. And we ought to look there and see what God says of himself. And we ought to believe that. And for us to refuse to believe that or reject it on some spurious claim that monks in the second century uh, changed the Bible or something like that, something we have no evidence for. No, there, there is absolutely no evidence that that happened anywhere. We have a record of the text uh, that we can go back and compare that dates back uh, all the way back to nearly to the time of the disciples. Exactly. Uh, so to, to make that claim and to reject the authoritative description God gives of himself in the Bible on that basis is folly. It really is folly. And so I would encourage our LDS uh, friends and neighbors, consider the view of God that's presented in Scripture, because it's such a glorious view. It's such a wonderful thing uh, to see a God who is eternal, who has no beginning, no end, who is, in fact, the beginning and the end, and to follow that God and worship Him and be drawn into eternity with that God is a wonderful thing. It's, it's so far beyond what our human minds can even comprehend the glory and goodness of it. But that makes him a God worthy of our trust and worthy of our worship. Amen. Um, not so if he's just an exalted man, who's just a little further along the trail than we are. Yeah, that's right. That's a God you can trust. It's a God you can worship. It's a God that you can trust to save you to the uttermost. 
It's a God that's sovereign enough to be in control of your trials and to see through those things. It has sufficient grace. It's a God who knows everything. He doesn't ever learn anything because he already knows everything. Yes. Um, it's a God that's outside of time. He doesn't get up every day and, you know, look at the morning newspaper to find out what's going on in the world. Yes. Um, that, that is a God who is worthy of our worship. And that's the biblical God. That is clearly the God of scripture. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I think that in our next discussion, we should talk about the unchangeable God. I think the theological term is the immutability of God. Yes. Um, And I think that would be a great follow-up to what we're discussing. We've kind of discussed a lot of it already, but I think it'd be good to look at that. Absolutely. Well, I guess our time's about up for now, but um, we'd love to hear from you, questions, comments, criticisms. Uh, my email address is preacher of grace. That's one word, preacher of grace at yahoo.com. And Pastor Malinak. My Malinac. email is P Malinak. That's P as in Pastor Malinak, my last name, M A L L I N A K at gmail.com. Well, until next time, thank you for listening. We love you and God bless. Let me stop recording here.